but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan, and I'm James. We are done with Cincinnati. We have said and bid farewell to the Lindner Family Tennis Center in Mason, Ohio. Yeah, it's been quite a week. Um, it gets a little easier, I think, every year. Um, the rain was rather trying for a few days there. It seems like we have to deal with rain on some level every year. Yeah, I mean, it is August in the Northeast. It's going to happen. But the parking lots are kind of a mud pit out here. A lot of the players had to play twice in a day. Um, even doubles quarterfinals and semifinals were both played on Saturday. But you know what? Somebody who had to play a lot of tennis this week, Novak Djokovic, who played, I believe, 16 sets this week, was delayed multiple times, had to play two matches in one day. He is your champion, and he is... As they say, the golden master. <laughs> he who has won every yeah. master's title that there is. We're not going to use the golden masters on this podcast because it doesn't make sense in tennis context. I think I just did. Because golden in tennis is like a golden slam. It means you have a gold medal. Uh, so while it is an incredible achievement, I just think it needs a better name. That's it. What he's done across all different surfaces over this past decade is obviously remarkable what he did this week not playing his best tennis getting tested by Milos Raonic Grigor Dimitrov Chilich a lot of different but even Manorino in the in his yeah. first match he this played was not, quite a few three set matches not Novak at his best but he is brilliant when necessary mm -hmm. and in this particular final it's the most high profile final that we've had the privilege to watch and it did not deliver because <laughs> Roger Federer did not deliver on his end. Right. So we'll get to that. Um, let's start with the women's final. Okay. Kiki Burton's from the Netherlands took out number one Simona Halep in three sets. Man. So the second set was very good, I would say. It was entertaining. The first and the third were not so great. Let's start with what was on offer. What were the stakes for this match? Because for Simona Halep, she was bidding to become the first woman since Ivan Gulagong in 1973 to win both Canada and Cincinnati in the same summer. Right. I don't want to say back-to-back -back because I don't know what the, the calendar was like back then, but... Well, and to be fair, Cincinnati was not played for quite a long time. Like, over 20 years in two different stretches, women didn't play in Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. So it's not quite like you know, a 50-year stretch. Yeah, but it's still a cool stat. It was something. It is. And, and it, it is, is a, it's a difficult achievement. It is, because most years they are back-to-back. -back. These hard courts are very hot. It's very humid in both, well, all three cities that it's played, Toronto, Montreal, and Cincinnati. You're dealing with rain delays, storms. Uh, it's just a lot. And the fact that no one has done it, I think, speaks to that. Well, Simona won in Montreal, and she came here... And her first match against Ayla Tomlanovic was tough. It was rain delayed. She had to play two matches. She had to come back and finish the next day and then play again that night. 
but since then she's won everything in straight sets so it wasn't a, a difficult path I would say to the final but the cumulative effect of having won last week and then making the final this week is that she's got a lot of mileage on her legs and you asked her in press after her win last night whether or not she felt like she needed to get it done in two sets mm -hmm. that if she would have enough stamina to go three and she said yeah I feel like I could have played forever right she said unequivocally no I felt like I had a lot left I wasn't worried about that and she felt confident that she could kind of outlast her opponent by running mm -hmm. and but to be fair to her and I think to give her more credit than she gives herself she played a very aggressive economical semi-final even yeah but what we saw today at the start of that third set is that she was totally gassed. Absolutely. Which yeah. was a little bit surprising. Mm -hmm. So she runs through the first set, 6-2. It looked like if she could make it through the second set, this would be kind of an uneventful final. If the same things were happening. Kiki looked maybe a little bit nervous. She was making a lot of errors. And Simona was just doing almost exactly what she did in the semifinal. Mm -hmm. She was obviously using her speed, which is a great weapon, but she was staying aggressive. Her forehand was particularly strong. She was hitting winners. She was even looking to move forward, not always, but occasionally. I was thinking, okay, well, this might be a straight set final. It might not be that exciting. Mm -hmm. But you had just sat through Burton's semifinal against Petra Gavidova, and it was almost a carbon copy. Right. As to what happened today. Right. It was humid conditions. Kiki started nervously, lost the first set, found her way into the second set. Went up in both sets. Uh, today, Simona clawed her way back. And in that, with Burton's up 4-1, Simona called for Darren Cahill. He came on coach. They got their shit together. And Simona came right back out and won three games. Had a break point to go up 5-4 and then serve for the match. Burton's dug in and played some excellent tennis. Mm -hmm. And so she was able to replicate what she did against Petro, coming from a set down and then running away with it in the third. Right. I, it's so interesting to me not being an athlete. Like, what does what goes through your head after you lose that first set so badly? And clearly with her, it was like, well, I know what I can do. If I start to step in and play more aggressively, I'm bound, I'm bound to start making it. I don't know how you tell yourself, I need to serve better, and then actually do it. And that's what happened. Sure, but that's easier said than done. She's playing the world number one, Simona Halep, who is playing the ball of her life this year. Mm -hmm. She is by far and away the best player on tour, I think. Right. And the most consistent player. And when you've seen her put that down in the first set and let you know that this ain't going to be no easy business for you today, Kiki, and for, then, for you to then wheel and come again and reset and bring your best tennis after that on what was historically your least favorite surface this is your first hard court final mm -hmm. it was and it's a big one it was absolutely impressive well that's exactly what i'm saying i'm saying she sat down and thought what am i doing wrong i'm not returning well enough i'm not serving well enough and she went on to fix those things she beat four top 10 players this week we mentioned Kvitova. She also beat Wozniacki and Svitolina. Uh, Simona Halep is the first reigning world number one that Burton's has beaten. This puts her at number seven in the race to Singapore, 
with, uh, I mean, a very good chance to qualify, especially if she keeps this momentum up. She's up to a career-high number 13 in the rankings. You mentioned the the top 10 players that she's beaten. I believe it's up to 9 now on the season. I think Simona was the 10th. 10. Yeah. She's beaten 10 top 10 players this year. And this is from somebody who told us in press yesterday that she considered quitting tennis at the end of 2017. Right. She just dropped that in, like, uh, and then kind of moved on. Well, she, she, was, was... she was skillfully asked about it. <laughs> well, she was pressed about it, of yeah. course. Now, Simona's run, like you said, she wasn't tested for most of it. Let's talk about the semifinal with Sabalenka, because that was really impressive. It was by far the best match that I've ever seen Simona Halep play Mm -hmm. in person. I was thoroughly Mm -hmm. impressed. I was like, wow, this is a boss-ass performance by the world number one. (laughs) This is a world number one type performance. Yeah. Because you have this young woman who is feeling herself, who hits the ball like no other young person I've seen in mm-hmm. recent years. Like this, uh, Arena Sabalenka, if she's able to progress and be consistent, she is going to beat a whole lot of people. Yeah. She's another one who's just slaying giants out here all year. She and her teammates made the Fed Cup final last year. She's from Belarus. She made the Eastbourne final. And she was having kind of a star is born moment at this tournament. This is the first time that a lot of American fans have watched her play. And, uh, you know, she is a, a tiny bit controversial because of the grunt, I guess. Mm-hmm. But she is absolutely electrifying to watch in person because it's rare to see someone play tennis without fear. And that sounds like such a cliche, but she makes things happen that shouldn't realistically happen. How many times were we sitting watching that match and you just laughed? At the ridiculousness that she was doing on court. Right. Because it's like, not only did she make it, why did she even attempt it from that position? Like, she can hit winners from everywhere. Didn't she save a match point with a 116-mile-an-hour ace? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absurd. (laughs) (laughs) So Sabalenka is clearly one to watch. I mean, people have been telling us that here and there quite a bit. We saw her, I mean, drag Carolyn Garcia through a three-set match that Caroline was not happy to be in. Well, she was up 5-3 in that third set and managed Mm. to lose at 5-7. Right. But Simona's performance against Sabalenka, a player on the rise, and who could really challenge her in a way that maybe Muguruza did last year in the final here, just thwack the hell out of the ball. Um, it It was very mature, and it felt so different from the Simona from last year, who sometimes came into these big matches frozen. We were able to talk to uh, both Simona in several press conferences and also her coach, Darren Cahill, was made available for a kind of coaching roundtable. I think that Simona and Darren are one of the relationships in tennis that people find most interesting. And we don't mean that in a sexual way. No, not at all. I just their coaching relationship is a hot topic on tennis social media always. So to hear... Simona and Darren talk about each other and kind of how Simona has evolved as a player is very interesting to me mm-hmm. and hopefully to you all. So take a listen to what we have here and then we'll break it down a little bit. Simona, you sat here a year ago apologizing for your performance at the Rogers Cup and then had similar words in the final here. Can you look back over the last 12 months where you like transformed <laughs> your big match play and now 
you're just coming through in all the big moments. Yeah, you know, uh, with experience from uh, those moments, uh, I think uh, I got better this year, and uh, for sure they uh, helped me a lot. Uh, it was tough last year, maybe the pressure also of being number one in the world, so I didn't know how to manage it. But now um, I feel different, I feel stronger mentally, and um, I enjoy more. Even after French Open, um, it was a big success, and my, my dream came true. I still uh, feel good on court, and uh, I can say I'm more relaxed, and I can enjoy more. Simona, you've had these two long finals against Sloane Stevens this year. Um, what do you think is is the difference? What is helping you get through these matches? Is it, you know, better mental strength, your physicality? Well, uh, about yesterday we can talk that was like very close, <laughs> and I don't really know what was the key of the match to win it. But uh, for sure, I didn't give up any point, and maybe. With, experience, with more experience in the tough moments, I could win the match. But she improved a lot in the last uh, year, and um, it's a different person, in my opinion, on court. So it's always nice to see that I'm able to win these matches. Uh, it was a great performance winning against her every time, and also French Open final. She was leading uh, in the first set and then break. So I feel like um, yesterday I was just. Um, stronger mentally, but um, I compare myself now with the past, not with her, because she is also strong mentally, she didn't give up. But there were a few balls that decided the match. Darren, you said that one of your long-term goals over the duration of your time with Simona has been for her to be able to troubleshoot better on court. Yeah. And we've seen, especially this year at the French Open, when she was down against Sloan, that she was able to do that, you could say, finally, yeah. in the big moment. Are you now able to take a more firm stance with her when she wants that mid-match counseling because you can say, like, look, you, you just did it? And is that something kind of the way you were thinking in, in Montreal? It's the first time I've ever shook her off. So it's the first time she's ever called for me and I gave her not coming out. So uh, I, I don't expect I'll do that often because it was more just knowing that she had it if she could just reach down deep and find it. She just had to do it herself. And sometimes those moments also her off a little bit, which is which gets her fired up, and, and instead of concentrating on me, she concentrates on her opponent a little bit as well. So I'm learning all the time with her. I think that coaching is it's like an ocean; it's always moving. And if you're not moving with it, you're not learning. And with her, I feel like there's so much to her personality and her game and the way she plays that I'm learning as a coach all the time. So hopefully that helps me be a better coach as well. I, I don't think that. I've changed my coaching all that much. I think I listen better than I used to to her. I used to walk out and have a set opinion as to what she needed to do to win a tennis match without really listening to what she was saying, which is normal because we have 60 seconds to walk out there, got to get it done, get the message across, come off, and hopefully they implement. Now I feel like I listen to her words, see if she's struggling, see what she's struggling with, and try to play, uh, find a quick resolution for her or something at least to go out there and concentrate on. So. It's been it's been good, but I don't think my coaching has changed that much. Um, but hopefully, it's I'm becoming a, a better listener. So Simona talks about how she feels after winning the French Open and being at number one and being comfortable at number one for a long time. That she is a very different player. Mm-hmm. That she's not kind of paralyzed by that fear. Some of the pressure has been relieved, and it's. A lot of players, when they win their major, do not recover this well. No. Obviously. 
it's a, uh, I mean, it's absolutely to her credit, her and Darren's credit, that she's been able to come back since the French Open and play so well. Right. Now, for Darren's part, I, I enjoyed how humble he sounded as a coach. How he talked about active listening and being willing to evolve as a coach because he is such a respected mind in tennis, respected among commentators, players. I mean, he does it all. And for him to be willing to really dig in to this relationship with Simona um, is, I think, says a lot about him as a coach. He also has a cash cow. Let's not, let's not overlook that part of it. Oh, sure. <laughs> but, I, I mean, he puts in work. Yeah. He left Simona. He addressed that as well. Mm-hmm. That He tr- saw that as kind of a last resort. And what did he say? Coaching is like the ocean. That was so it's like great. an ocean. It's always moving. <laughs> if you're not listening to your player, you're not learning. Some other women's matches that we liked. Well, we haven't talked about Serena and Petra yet, have we? No. We were lucky enough to be blessed with a Serena Petra match in the second round of this tournament. This, uh, we wrote a bit about this earlier in the week. This kind of feels like the rivalry that never was, and we wish could be. These two, I think it's because their peak is so high, like they're, of the past maybe 15 years, their best is the most dominating. That's like, a big statement. I I think that's true. I think Petra at Wimbledon, when she's peaking, is like nothing tennis has ever seen. And I mean, with Serena, it kind of goes without saying. Heading into this match, they'd only played six times. Serena led 5-1. And now it's a 5-2 head-to-head because Miss Petra Kvitova won in three sets. Mm-hmm. There's something that I found difficult to assess from watching tennis live. And it's maybe because I'm not trained to be watching tennis this way. Or maybe I'm not trained to be watching it from up high in the media box. Which is a totally different view from the angles that we get on TV. Yeah, I find it difficult to assess the level of play in some of these matches. Mm-hmm. You know, like for me, the Petra-Serena match didn't feel like a great match. It felt like a good match, but it didn't feel like I was watching something special. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. But it's special because of the context, because it's something we rarely get to see. Um, Also, watching Serena play live just from a selfish standpoint is something I haven't seen enough. And I relish like every moment that I can see it. I think that at times they both were playing well at the same time. Mm-hmm. And most of the times one was surging while the other was making a lot of mistakes. As evidenced by the scoreline. Right. So the second set, again, was clearly the best. Happened to be the one that Serena won, but it was tighter. It was more competitive. There were long rallies, which, interestingly, Serena came out on top of most of the long rallies, which is something that she's not used to. And she also said that she's... She was looking forward to playing the long ma- the long rallies, which is something that she's not used to doing. Right. You know, she likes to end points quickly, but she figured out within that match that playing the longer points, she was able to get into a rhythm and upset Petra even more. Mm-hmm. And I think that she showed that she's more confident with her conditioning right now. She was patient in the rallies. She wasn't going for winners from bad positions. Her feet seem to be moving a bit better, which, I mean, there were up and downs with her movement throughout the match, I think. 
but for me, this is clearly worlds away from the performance against Joanna Conta in San Jose. But I think we have reasons to be optimistic. Serena herself said this is going to be a long road. She feels she's at the very beginning of the comeback. But I think it's heading in the right direction. Her play against Gavrilova was excellent. It really was. Her movement was the bestest yeah. look since she's come back. And while she started slowly against Petra, by the end of the second set, she had figured out the serve out wide on the backhand, and it looked like she was getting her teeth into the match. Where this is a different Serena, not quite the Serena that we're used to, is that after getting the break to start the third set, she ends up losing it 6-2. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not something that we're used to seeing. Right. She wasn't able to run away or keep that lead in the third set. Mm-hmm. And Serena said, you know, people were saying on Twitter during the match, it's like, hello, Petra's serving out wide almost every time. Why are you not reading it? And she addressed that after and was like, well, you know, eventually I started reading it, but it's still a lefty Kvitova serve out wide. Like, it's not that easy to return, (laughs) even if you're heading in the right direction. And even if you read it a couple times or you guess a couple times, maybe she's giving herself the benefits of the doubt of saying she was reading it. Maybe it's well, about guesswork. Yeah. And say you guess right, and then she bombs it up the up the tee. Right. You know, when somebody has that big of a weapon, and we know what the lefty serve can do, mm-hmm. you have any number of options if you're able to execute it. Yes. And if you're leaning too far to one side, you're totally exposed down the tee. And I think Petra would learn that pattern as well, right? So I really enjoyed watching Petra this week. She had a she had a nice little run. I she doesn't typically perform very well at Cincinnati. She had only once previously made the semifinal. Yeah, I believe that was two thousand twelve. She talks about the humidity. Humidity. As she, she pronounced, <laughs> it's one of the best things I've ever heard. <laughs> I am by no means mocking her, but the way Petra Kvitova pronounces the word humidity gives me life. <laughs> she is. Uh, she seems so comfortable being famous now, mm-hmm. doesn't she? She's blossomed. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, obviously, we'd never interviewed her when she was 20 years old, when she was, uh, like, out there in 2009 beating Dinara Safina at the U.S. Open. She seemed like such a shy, reserved girl. And now she walks into press and she's making jokes with everybody. Like, she is the life of the party. A lot of people, when they come into press, they the first thing they do is greet everybody and say, Hi, how are you? You know, mm. they're very pleasant. But Petra is a next level. Uh, yes. And everything about her seems so sincere and sweet. You know, it's it mm. was... I know that our jobs as press and people critique press about this all the time. You're not there to be friends with the players. Right. Every time there's any semblance of enjoyment on the part on the part of press it's like well why aren't you being objective and why aren't you writing this and why aren't you like taking down my enemy the enemy of my fave you know Uh, it's but when you're in those moments and somebody comes in and there's a genuine human moment of somebody saying hi how are you you give it back and then that starts the process it doesn't preclude you from asking a tough question if you need to but the general tenor of the press conference by and large, universally, is not an antagonistic environment. It's a very low-key, friendly environment. Mm -hmm. 
sometimes you're going to piss off the players, but it doesn't have to be antagonistic yeah. or adversarial, right? Mm-hmm. So let's talk about this men's final. Federer and Djokovic, their 46th meeting, they were 23 and 22 coming into it with Djokovic leading, and they were tied on hard courts. So what was at stake at this match? Because both mm-hmm. finals had quite a bit at stake. Yeah. Uh, Djokovic has lost in the Cincinnati final five times before. This was his sixth. He said he felt some pressure here before because the losses were kind of piling up. They were kind of weighing on him. And it's it's hard to explain really why he has lost here that many times when he's won every other Masters event and Grand Slam. So that was at stake. Obviously, this would complete the set what people are calling the Golden Masters, as we said earlier. For Djokovic, um, I would say that there's less at stake for Federer. Yeah, I would say so. Right? I mean, what has he not accomplished? It would have been his 99th ATP title, which is a towering number. It is. It's not the most, because Jimmy Connors and all them played... A lot. All them other hoes back in the day. (laughs) But, um, I mean, Roger has been... He didn't play Canada, obviously. This is clearly a good warm-up for him for the U.S. Open. And he looked... um, Rusty. He did. But it's funny because he looked rusty, but his serve was almost impeccable through his first four matches. He wasn't broken at all. He faced only five break points across the first four matches before the final and all of a sudden the very first game of the final he fends off two break points so you know this is going to be a different story Federer did not play in Cincinnati the last two years 2016 was because of injury it also coincided with the Olympics Mm -hmm. and then last year he didn't play as well right And uh, the 2015 year where he beat Djokovic in the final was the famous Sabre year Mm -hmm. where he debuted Sabre, the sneak attack by Roger, pissed off Novak. And so I think Novak had a lot of not-so-great memories of playing Roger Federer here. It was a loud crowd? Yeah, I was very surprised because there were very, very few Romanians in the crowd for Simona Halep. It's so different from Canada. But here... There were a lot of Serbian flags. I think in number, they were much smaller than the Federer contingent. But in volume, all you heard was Nole. It was about the same. There were a lot of times when you heard a lot of chanting and it was equal parts Roger and equal Mm. parts Nole. It was was just a very boisterous crowd. Like I don't think that I've ever seen a final live that was that spirited. Of course, when you have these two legends playing each other in a final, it's going to be hyped. They hadn't played since the Australian Open in 2016. So it had been a while, two and a half years since they'd played. Mm -hmm. They'd played 45 times before and hadn't played in the last two and a half years. And what we got was a bit of a lackluster final. Yeah, I mean, it it wasn't a great match, to be honest. It was, the story was... Djokovic was able to break once in each set and that was that. There wasn't a lot of there weren't a lot of long games like long grueling rallies is not really or something 
something you're going to get at this stage of Roger Federer's career, I don't think. We did get Roger Federer being broken from being 40 love up. Yes. We had a lot of moments where it was evident that rust was at play for him. Shanked balls, errors at net, mm-hmm. some ah, some ghastly volleys. Right. And, uh, I mean, alternatingly, he can do such beautiful things. Some incredible forehands down the line. His serving is beautiful, but not... It was really not perfect today. The second serve was not great. And to Federer's credit, in press, he said, you know, there are a lot of things I didn't do well today, but this is not what this is about. This is about Novak creating history, and this is his day. Right. And Novak reveled in it. He, I mean, watching Novak after that match, he went to every corner of that court and signed as many balls, as many shirts, as many flags. Mm -hmm. He took, I would guess, at least 50 selfies. He literally was right. walking, picking up a phone, just pressing a button, handing it back, doing the same wash, rinse, repeat. I was so impressed with that. That was very endearing, actually, because I left the stadium, went to get an ice cream, of course, the last ice cream of the week, <laughs> and uh, he was still out there. It was probably a half hour after the match, and he was, you know, kind of stage directing the selfies, as you say. He was. I saw him checking a few of them to make sure they looked okay, and he was giving the people what they wanted and I'm sure the organizers are trying to usher him off yeah <laughs> you know I will say he could use a few pointers in the angle of the selfie because he took a lot of those from very low uh-huh like looking up you and got for to do him, the selfie from up high for him he probably looks fine yeah from that angle but adding the rest a couple of pounds us... to Novak from that angle <laughs> will probably do him a world of good right <laughs> that's your shady moment for the podcast <laughs> So the thing with Novak this week, as I mentioned a little earlier, he struggled in a lot of his matches. He went three sets uh, in, what, all of them but one, right? But the final? He went to three sets against Manorino, Dimitrov, Raonic, and Cilic, and did not look his best. And I said this during Wimbledon and was roundly shouted down. I don't think he played his best at Wimbledon. He didn't play his best here. But when it mattered, he played brilliantly. Uh-huh. And it shows the kind of mental fortitude this guy has. Like, he just knows how to win. That's so much more impressive than me than perfection. This idea of Novak being back, and we saw it with Rafa and is Rafa back, what matters is if they're winning. I think we're struggling to view these players with how they're playing now and what they're giving us and comparing it to what we remember. Mm-hmm. Let's let's keep in mind too that memories aren't always the best. You know, there's... Uh, right. Like, we may be romanticizing what their best was back in the day. Mm-hmm. And the bottom line for them is that they're winning. And Novak can absolutely hang his hat on the fact that he won Wimbledon and he's now won Cincinnati. That is just a stunning turnaround from where he was to start the year. Yeah. And I think with Rafa has to be considered the favorite, like capital T, the favorite for the U.S. Open. Oh, capital T for the, not (laughs) F. I was like, what what is going on? And (laughs) let's be real, it's been a long time since Rafa has been the the favorite at the U.S. Open. Absolutely. What are some of the other men's matches that we enjoyed? We got a big quarterfinal with Vavrinka and Federer. It was the 24th time that they'd played and Federer held held the head-to-head lead 20-3 to 
and Stan had never beaten him on hard courts. All mm. three wins that Stan had over Roger have come on clay. Right. I I felt that Stan outplayed Roger for quite a bit of that match. The main takeaway from this Vavrinka Federer match is that Vavrinka is back or very close to being back and is possibly a few matches away from playing himself into full form. He was moving well, he's coming off of knee surgery, and we've seen him have some bad losses. Mm. I mean, Le- the, the backhand is looking great. He's actually winning back-to-back matches. He looks confident. We saw him give Rafa, your Toronto winner, a big run for his money, mm. pushing him to two, what is it, seven, six, seven, five sets? Yeah. And he was able to bring that to Cincinnati and look good again and push Federer to three sets. So that was that. Uh, we are a Canadian podcast, so maybe we should talk about Milos and Dennis. Yeah, we parked our asses at that match. Yeah, we were twice. We, we were good Canadians. <laughs> During one of those horrible days with all the rain delays, uh, those two were able to start their match and play legit three points yeah. until it started raining again. Bless Simona Halep. She was resuming her her first match on center court. And she was up, I believe, 4-3 or something like that. And she was able to finish the match in like less than 10 minutes before the rain came. I mean, I swear she won two games in like 35 seconds. Uh (laughs) Meanwhile, we're out here on court 10. The warm-up takes 10 minutes, presumably because they didn't have time to practice. I learned that on Twitter. Oh, really? Because we were both sitting there and like, did she just say 10 minutes? Because that seemed like real long. Yeah, it felt like forever. Yeah. So because of that, they were only able to play three points before the first interruption. Mm. Dennis served to open the match. It was 15.30 when they were delayed. They came back and, like one would expect, played to serve, went to a tie break, and Dennis had set point and then flubbed a ball to then really bring Milos back into it and give him the chance to win the set, which he did. Then he ran away to a three-love lead in the second, got back on serve, but eventually broke again to win the match Mm 7-6-6-4. I imagine that Milos is pretty satisfied that he's not done. He's not the second banana in Canada because Dennis is getting all of the headlines lately. He is the new thing. And with with good reason. But I think Milos is raising his hand and saying, Hello, I'm still here. I'm the one who's been the runner-up at Wimbledon. And I've been out here forever. We just saw him in Toronto get second billing, pretty much, to Dennis. Oh, yeah. At the Rogers Cup. Yeah. And he comes here. He beats him. He avenges a loss that he had to Dennis earlier in the year in clay. He lost to Dennis in straight sets. Mm-hmm. Beats him this time. He will leave Cincinnati with the top Canadian ranking. It's still in the 20s, but that's that's not nothing, you know, right. for how much of a forgotten player he's been for much of the last year due to the stop-and-start nature of his career with injuries. He's now able to potentially have some momentum back in his career, making the quarterfinals here, and quite honestly should have beaten Novak Djokovic. Yeah, He held a 5-4 lead, served for that first set, lost the first set, came back, won the second set, and then eventually losing in the third. Yeah, you know, Milos is not the most electrifying guy, as we know, which accounts for some of the uh, discrepancy in coverage between Shapovalov and him. But there is something cool about watching 
such a powerful serve in person. Mm-hmm. Like it's just uh, it's just physically impressive. It also didn't feel like I was watching a serve bot, which no. I was yeah pleasantly surprised by. I actually, somewhat enjoyed watching Milos play. Mm-hmm. He's got like a, a nimble little backhand slice. Mm-hmm. His two-handed backhand was horrible. Like, I don't think he made a single one over the net in the first set. But the rest of his game actually looked quite nice. One of the things I took away from tennis this week and learning about myself was just how much I enjoyed watching cross-court backhand slice rallies. Because mm. we got a lot of those with Milos and Djokovic. Yeah. And it was something that Milos was able to deploy to upset Djokovic from, for the first half of that match. Mm-hmm. And he kind of went away from it a bit in the end, which I think was to his detriment. But I, I understand now maybe why I enjoy slicing my backhand so much. <laughs> uh, Nick Kyrgios was a big story here in Cincinnati as he is on basically every tournament grounds that he steps upon. Mm-hmm. The, the impression for me, again, is that Nick is someone who crowds will gravitate toward and are surprisingly generous with. People just feel Nick Kyrgios's charisma, whether it's positive or negative, and, uh, and want to will him to do good things. <laughs> it's crazy to see that, that happen collectively. At a match. Correct me if I'm wrong, because we watched him make the final here last year, but I didn't think that the crowd took him in the way they did this time around. I, and no. I don't know if it's because more people are becoming aware of who he is. Hmm. And the narrative surrounding that is, well, Nick is good for the game because he brings eyeballs to the tennis because he does all this crazy shit. And people want to see... Um, him behave badly, and the people are there to watch him because when they when he does behave badly, they're 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 there to tell him how he's terrible for the game. Right. <laughs> but in fact, it was a near universal embrace of Kyrgios at this tournament, despite all the absolutely terrible things he did, <laughs> of which there were quite oh a few. Oh my God! So he was on Court Ten, which is this sort of small, sunken amphitheater court that's very intimate, and. We weren't actually at the match. It was kind of standing room only. But the people who were there brought a lot of interesting stuff back from it. He was very vocal with the people on the sidelines. He was super mad about a call and said that I'm going to tank this set so hard. Um, Cursing. I mean, it was just like this small psychodrama, uh, like one character play, acting, being acted out on Court 10. And still, people are sending their energy down to Nick, willing him to get through that match. You can do it, Nick. Don't give up. We're here for you. (laughs) How often do you hear Uh, that? He sends a ball, blasts it out of court 10, could possibly have landed on center court. I don't think it did, but that's how (laughs) far he hit it. And apparently he did the same thing in his following match on the grandstand against Del Potro. Yeah, yeah. I get the impression that when Nick is not well physically, and that's been the story of his young career so far, he's had hip injuries, his knees were taped up. When he's not feeling like he's able to compete because of his body, then all those other antics come into play more. Like yeah. he doesn't know how to express disappointment in that regard in any other way. Mm-hmm. And for us, I feel like I, I'm glad that you and I have gotten past the whole like 
is Nick good or bad for tennis? Because now it's like Nick is, period. Like Nick exists, this is who he is. And Nick is an interesting guy and people, I think, want to almost protect him or like psychoanalyze him. I don't know. Like he is clearly sensitive and vulnerable and he wants to sort of mask it by acting out and being tough. And he's obviously very frustrated with where his body is at the moment. So much so that I'm not even sure why he's playing here. Mm. You know, I think his lower body is a mess. Like the hip, as we said before, is very alarming for someone his age. Um, so I don't know. I mean, he is compelling like almost no one else in the game right now. Yeah, there's shy of watching... Federer for the beauty of his game, as folks will tell you, they'll buzz about while they're at a match. Mm-hmm. You hear that all the time. You know, uh, a simple shot and they'll just ooh and ah. <laughs> the right. only thing that matches that, in my opinion, is Nick playing his eccentric brand of tennis. Right. And the anticipation of what he'll do next, for better or worse. And the net effect of that is you have somebody who is absolutely I was very skeptical about this for a long time like I was I said on this podcast how many people are actually coming to tennis to see Nick Kyrgios and the answer from being here in Cincinnati is a lot yeah (laughs) because he's the topic of conversation at the grounds and you don't really understand that if you're just watching tennis Mm -hmm. on TV no where where it becomes problematic is the ways in which people talk about Nick Kyrgios oh yeah when it becomes just water cooler conversation for people to moralize Right. And to say how he's a horrible person and terrible for the game. That we're not here for. And we've talked <laughs> right. about at length in the past about how that's racialized. And the best case in point that we can refer you to is Sock, comma, Jack. Mm-hmm. What else was there? There was the USTA Pride Night. We didn't mention that on the last episode. That was an oversight. But the USTA Midwest section put on this event... Uh, in the hospitality area, mm-hmm. it's catered, open bar, uh, just a, a celebration of LGBT tennis players. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, celebrating the queer fans who come out here and support this sport year in and year out. Thanks to Peter, Tyguy84, he had let us know about this event uh, weeks ago. Yeah. But we'd forgotten. You know, it's a, mm-hmm. it was on the Tuesday, I believe, and... The first few days of the tournament are so busy with going between all-access hour and then this year we had the coaches' roundtable stuff and getting ourselves situated at the tournament that we totally forgot. It wasn't until we were running some errands and I said, well, let me go get a milkshake because I literally (laughs) never have milkshakes. Uh And for some reason in the last month, a vanilla milkshake is my jam. And so this is, what, my fourth year in Cincinnati? This is the first... That was the first time I'd been to Grater's to get some kind of ice cream-related mm-hmm. treat. It is so good. It, it really is. It, yeah. And at that stall, I ran into a listener of the show. Mm-hmm. We were able to meet uh, Phil and John. And we... I You weren't there at the time, but I spoke to them for a little bit. And then we had to go run an errand. And they had, to, they had, Phil had said to me, are you going to this thing later today? And I was like, um, I, don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. And I like, oh, oh, yeah, the, the Pride Night thing. When is it? You know, because... It's like, oh, it's like now. Yeah, it was uh, an event totally separate from what we were having access to. Right. right? 
and we actually uh, failed to register for it, but mm-hmm. the organizers were so kind yeah. and let us in and gave us pass. So thanks to USTA Midwest for putting that on. That was really nice. And we were able to hang out with Phil and John again at the event and had a great time. Uh, thank you guys for listening to the show and the support, and it was wonderful to meet you in person. Mm-hmm. Um, happening around the grounds, other than Nick Kyrgios, this was actually hilarious at the all-Canadian match, at Dennis and Milos's match. It was hilarious for you. you I was fuming. Yeah, you were very annoyed, but I laughed. So we sat, we were sitting like in the front row on the corner, and there was a father and son next to us, and a ball flew into the stands, obviously, with those two serving, uh-huh. and a teenage kid like caught it. And he was all excited. This guy was in front of us, like a mm. little bit in front of us to the right. And then the dad and like the five-year-old was to the left of us. Yeah. So this teenager caught the ball. And then this guy, the dad leans over and is like, "Uh, it's my son's dream to catch a ball at this tournament. Meanwhile, the child is like a toddler. Mm. The kid is like four years old. It's, It's not his dream, first of all. And he says, can I have, can I give you a dollar? For the ball. A dollar. A dollar. Are we talking about a dollar? And best believe, he was serious about that dollar. Because. Wait, wait for it. I have to tell this part. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So the kid in front, he's like, no, really, it's fine. After he's been coerced, hoodwinked into giving up this ball, right? This dude is now telling him, I'll give you a dollar for it. He's like, no, that's fine. Keep, Keep your fucking dollar. Well, because it's insulting. Exactly. So this dude, now the play is carrying on. And then the ball kid, who is doing so much work, he's standing, he's stationed right in front of us. He's running around, running around, doing all this stuff. He comes over and he's like, where the ball at? He wants the ball back. He's like, they want me to get the ball back. And as soon as he says that, the dad grabs the ball and hides it in his bag. (laughs) So now this teenager in front is vulnerable to like the umpire, the ball kid, all these people searching for this ball. And he has to like decide if he's going to lie or just wait it out. Meanwhile, this dad is like there now fiddling around, tells the kid to, oh, give me the bag, another bag. And he pulls out, wait for it. He mm-hmm. pulls out a box of Quaker Oats fucking granola bars. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess this is all settled. They're, they're off to eating now. No, it's barter time. After a point finishes, he taps the kid on the shoulder and he's like, oh, I don't have a dollar. Uh, I, can I give you this instead? Mind you, I saw him ruffling through his wallet. He had a $5 bill. He had a $10 bill. He had a whole lot of bills in there. (laughs) Just not the $1 bill that his cheap ass wants to give this dude. The kid is like, no, I I don't need this granola bar. Really, it's fine. And he's like, no, but the kid wants to share it with you. Meanwhile, this child is like not even paying attention. The kid doesn't know what the fuck is going on. I I just could not. It was was an absurd moment. (laughs) Um, Alexis Ohanian was down there getting ice cream after Serena's loss, just talking to fans. I found that so fascinating. Serena and the rest of the team were kind of whisked off center court, have to go to press. Isha walked into press with her as her bodyguard, you know. But Alexis is out there just hanging around. Having the time of his life. a lot of people did not know who he was. Mm-hmm. So there were really there's a small group of people around him. Um, but they were there for a while. Yeah, they were kind of monopolizing him. Mm-hmm. Um, another interesting thing that happens off TV <laughs> is that 
in his match with Nikirios Del Potro left the court for a nine-minute bathroom break. The bathrooms are not really that far away from the grandstand, but apparently as he was leaving, it's been reported by some members of the press to us, he slammed his water bottle on the ground and it like went flying. <laughs> like people got wet. And then the bo- then the the bottle the water bottle like flying to the stands. Well, I, we like, don't. I don't know that. I can't confirm that. Okay. So, but the th- it's just funny because had that happened on court, that could have been something as serious as a default. Mm-hmm. But it happened. I mean, it's happening during the match, but it's like on the way to the bathroom. And certainly, Nick did not need all that distraction <laughs> after winning the first right. set. <laughs> he was mad about the bathroom break. Very mad. Two other things I want to talk about before we get to the end of this episode. One of the benefits of watching Tennis Live is that you get to watch players that you only see on TV. And in some instances, you get a whole new appreciation for them. Two players for me were Borna Cioric and Martin Fuksovic. And while we've talked about Cioric on this podcast for other reasons... For mm-hmm. and quite extensively, not always has it been about his game. But I find his game beautiful to watch. There's something very structured and organized about his tennis that also has an equal amount of panache mm-hmm. and uh, style and tradition to his strokes that mm-hmm. I quite enjoy. Yeah, we're talking about Chorch still, right? Yes. I get distracted when I hear his name. You know. Oh my god. Uh, uh, watching him like way up close, you get a better sense of all these, all these top spins and back spins and side spins that he can do. He employs a slice very well. Uh, it is a cool, like a nifty little game to watch. As for Fuksovic, I saw him play Stan Wawrinka. The lines in his body when he's playing tennis—they're so mm. beautiful. Like he can—he could be the Jerry West logo of tennis. What's Jerry West? He is the the monogram on the NBA's logo. Oh, oh okay. He casts such a beautiful shadow when he's playing mm. tennis. He can uh, slice. He can come to net. He ha- he can play any shot essentially. Yeah. He's round about top forty now. As for what his ceiling is, I don't know. Uh, but I thoroughly enjoyed watching him play. You know who I liked was watching Joanna Conta and Yelena Ostapenko play doubles together. That was a blast because they play on very small courts with just a few bleachers on each side. You can really sit like in the front row. It wasn't very packed at all. They were playing Makarova and Hradetska who ended up winning the tournament in women's doubles. But uh, Kontapenko is a pretty good team actually. Yeah. And so Ostapenko is not the greatest volleyer. And the serve obviously needs work. The first serve is much improved. The second is still a problem. But for many of the points, Kanta is is pretty lethal at the net for the most part. So Kanta was content to stay up there. Many times Makarova and Hradetska would bypass her, be hitting in the backcourt, and Yelena would just have to kind of run back and forth and just bomb forehands and backhands back and forth. And if you are in a long rally against Ostapenko, you're probably going to lose if you are, at this stage, mainly a doubles player. Mm-hmm. Like, she's a top-flight singles player, right? Um, 
Makarova is absolutely deadly on the volley. So in the games when she was mostly up front, it was usually a foregone conclusion. But it was a very tight match. That's a good segue to tell you that Makarova and Radetska went on to win the women's doubles title. Mm-hmm. And on the men's side, Jamie Murray and Bruno Suarez won the doubles title. And for Jamie Murray, it was his first ever Masters doubles title. Right, which I found very surprising. Bruno Suarez has won two with other partners, but it was Jamie's first. So we are at the end of our week in Cincinnati. Again, it was a very rewarding week. I wanted to outro with something that Marin Chilich told us in his All Access Hour because I found it uh, endearing mm-hmm. and kind of... I don't know how to describe it. I think I should let it sit on its own because it really... Uh, drew me to him. Marin, I get the sense that you don't get enough credit for the accomplishments in your career, for being a Grand Slam champion, consistently top 10, making multiple finals. Yeah, you I seem get, to have I a lower from myself. profile. <laughs> <laughs> Is that That's, something you enjoy? Or do you wish you'd get more recognition I, for what you do? I don't mind, you know. I don't mind, you know. We, we have in tennis uh, so many great, great athletes that, you know, uh, fans enjoy, uh, and especially... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful that I was in this era uh, with, with uh, guys like that. Uh, I think that made me better, and I'm uh, and I'm probably as, as good as ever I've been uh, as a tennis player. So I'm always improving, always learning, learning from the top guys, also learning from the from all over the guys, all all the other guys. Uh, you can learn uh, always some new things, and that makes it so special. And uh, you know, for accomplishments, I get that. Uh, from my team, from uh, closer ones, if not uh, from the fans. But uh, I'm, I'm, you know, feeling good where I'm at. Stay tuned next week for our U.S. Open preview. Just a little uh, teaser. A little teaser is that we will have our interview with David Taylor, who is the coach of Madison Keys, and our questions for Kamal Murray, obviously the coach of Sloan Stevens. Uh, we thought it would be a nice piece of symmetry to talk to the coaches of both uh, last year's women's finalists at the U.S. Open. Thanks for listening. If you want to catch up with the totality of everything that we've done in Cincinnati, head to thebodyserve.com. We wrote a few articles there. Check out our Instagram. There's some new pictures. There'll be more Mm -hmm. from Final Sunday. We also had a few dorky 60-second videos. (laughs) We're going to be using... You know, it's maybe not our preferred medium, but you actually get to see our faces and voices at the same time. We're going to be using Insta Stories more. We're we're heading into... Because I figured out how to use it. Yeah, we are heading into 2015. (laughs) Right. On that note, my name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR two L's, two T's. The Body Serve is on iTunes, any podcast catcher, any podcast app. If you've enjoyed our coverage, if you like the podcast, please, one of the best ways that you can support us is to give us a review on iTunes that helps bump our profile up and helps other people find the show. Thanks for keeping up with us in Cincinnati, and uh, we're going to be doing a lot more writing on thebodyserve.com soon. So look out for that. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.